Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you. Welcome to another episode of um, Science Hour um, for Voice of Islam. Um, my name is uh, Naveed Malik. I'm a teacher and a middle leader in education. Uh, we also have uh, Adil and Anas with us today, who, which, who I'm going to surprise by asking themselves uh, to introduce themselves. You see, they just woke up there at the, at the moment. So, um, um, Adil, uh, do you want to introduce uh, yourself to yes. our audience? Thank you. I'm, I'm Adil Baj. I'm a general and colorectal surgeon in Coventry. Okay. Um, I'm Anas Rana. I'm a uh, lecturer in bioinformatics and uh, research in computational biology. Okay, fantastic. Um, and it's, it, this is difficult, isn't it, when we ask... Uh, I said, I introduce ourselves. Uh, it's it's like it's not our really way. Is wanna, it? It's not our way. This is not the way. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think it's important for our audience to understand, of course, uh, where we're coming from, what our backgrounds are, and of course, what unifies us is we are members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, and 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 this this channel, of course, um, um, is a channel of that community. Um, so. Um, Today, uh, we're going to continue with that question which we asked in our last episode, available on our Voice of Islam uh, Science Hour stream. But can um, religion inspire science? Um, and I, I, what I really wanted to do uh, with this discussion was really get to the practical aspects of... So, so rather than talk about uh, more in, in a more abstract uh, talk in a really practical sense that has this historically happened? Does, does religion actually inspire science? Um, and, and, and also, does it do that now? Um, and I chose to s separate this question um, from the questions about um, conflicts between science and religion, which I think are relevant to this question, by the way, but, but they are slightly separate. That's a slightly separate question about the conflict and validation of one from the other. But really, does, does um, religion and taking as an example of Islam, and we, we practice, you know, we're Muslim, so we can talk from that perspective, and the Holy Quran, which is the, um, the, the holy book of Islam, uh, who we believe to be direct revelation from God, that has, has that inspired science? Is, is there a direct connection between the two? Um, and so we'll begin our journey uh, by, first of all, looking at the historical aspect of things um, as well. And I want to go uh, back uh, to um, the, uh, the eighth century and so on and, and talk about the Islamic Golden Age. Um, and I'm not sure if our, our listeners would be, would be aware of this. So I'm going to give a, a bit of a summary about that as well. So... Uh, the Islamic Golden Age uh, was an era from about the 8th to 13th century. It was marked by the political expansion of Islam, um, so um, the Islam spreading uh, to politically as well to, to different, um, uh, to many more regions um, around the Middle East, um, uh, into North Africa, uh, Central Asia, and Southern Europe, uh, in, in what we now call Spain. Um, during this time, there was a great flourishing in the arts, uh, in commerce, and in science. Uh, we had um, scientists uh, and scholars from different religions, uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, 
all participating in this development of science, art and medicine as well, and philosophy and mathematics. And this process went on for at least 500 years, give or take, and spread uh, from Spain to Persia. Um, at its height, um, historians say that in the or the historians say that it reached its zenith in the 10th and 11th centuries um, when the three great thinkers, um, uh, namely Ibn al-Haytham, uh, also known in the, in the Latin version of his name as al-Haysan, um, uh, al-Biruni, and uh, Ibn Sina, um, uh, who who's also known in the, was known or is known in the West as Avicenna, so th these were the the scientists which strode the earth uh, around that time at its height uh, of the Islamic Golden Age, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about these three scientists because they, uh, of course, they're only three among hundreds and hundreds and thousands uh, actually um, of scholars, but uh, they reflect. Um, 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 the, the, the golden age and, and in terms of the works they, that, that they actually do. So if I may start with Al-Haysan, uh, also known as Ibn Al-Haytham. So he was born in Iraq in uh, 965. Uh, he experimented with light and vision. He laid the foundations of modern optics. Um, and he also, um, really what he's credited with is um, laying an emphasis on empiricism, on the scientific method that we must test uh, uh, theoretical frameworks rigorously with scientific experimentation. So he's often referred to as the father of the scientific method. Um, um, and often it's, he's described, for example, Jamil Khalili, who's um, an, an academic uh, and a physicist who's written about um, the, the golden age um, of science within the Arabic world describes him as uh, one of the greatest physicists of all time, um, and r rightly so. Um, the mathematician ast and astronomer and geographer um, Al-Biruni, uh, so back in the day it seems like um, everyone was, a not everyone, but these scientists were polymaths, which is incredible, so they used to be masters of many, many disciplines, um, as opposed to how we are, um, how our, we are, how we do science, which is in highly specialized fashion. Um, he was born in Uzbekistan in 973. He wrote some 146 works, um, uh, totaling about 13,000 pages, uh, and which includes a vast sociological and geographical study of India. He was really interested in um, India and Indian culture and how it developed. Um, Ibn Sina, uh, who was born in 980, uh, is commonly regarded as one of the most significant innovators, not only in philosophy, but also in medicine and astronomy. His canon of medicine, a medical encyclopedia, was a standard textbook in universities across Europe for many centuries after his death, I think till about 1400s and so on. And there are many, many other names uh, there as well. If I may quote uh, Dr. Jamil Ragip, uh, was a professor of history of science at the University of Oklahoma. Nothing in Europe could hold a candle to what was going on in the Islamic world until about 1600. Um, and the idea there was, there is that uh, within within this period of time, these um, Islamic scientists 
uh, this, um, and, and not only Muslims, so these included Jews and Christians, really went out and went uh, to discover diverse sources of knowledge and of work and scientific work, which was done before, and bring them in, uh, translate them, collect them, make sense of them, categorize them, and then also develop that work. So it wasn't just translation movement as sometimes at the board. It said this is a real revolution which actually took place. Um, so I've, I've spoken for quite some time um, and I've only mentioned three names of scientists um, uh, which I'm using to represent the best of uh, that golden age uh, of, of, of Islamic science. Um, Adil or Anas, do, do you have any others that you, you, you want to talk about that you might have come across in your uh, discussions and studies? Well, I mean, the list is long. Um, you could talk about Allah Karizmi, who um, I'm sure Anas is also interested in as the the founder of, or certainly brought on algebra a long way, uh, introduced the decimal system. Uh, in fact, the word algebra is is from Arabic, meaning re reuniting broken parts. Oh, um, I didn't know that. And hmm. I mean, and you know, the great great scientists in uh, like Al Ghazali, who was around at the time of uh, Avicenna, Ibn Ibn Sina. I mean, it gets slightly confusing because there's there's Arabic names and more Western, uh, you know, recognized sure. names. Ibn Sina is in the West, we know him as Avicenna. Um, and he, I mean, of, of the people you've mentioned, I've got a bit more interest in Avicenna. Um, okay. not, not, not only, not really from a medical perspective. And he, his book, his compendium on medicine, his encyclopedia, the canon of medicine, um, really summarized many aspects of, of medical knowledge at that time and became a standard textbook all the way to the 17th century, which is, you know, remarkable when you think, you know, a textbook being, you know, a reference book for, you know, for that long period of time. Um, Did you say the, uh, the 17th, 17th century? century? Okay, okay, yeah, I was, I was putting a limit on it earlier, much, much earlier. Okay, okay um, But he, he was a great philosopher as well. And it was, it's quite interesting when you look back at that period. I mean, philosophy was perhaps you know much more thought of as much more important if you think about what philosophy is i mean i don't know what, what you guys think maybe with time the scientific area progresses the scientific method comes in philosophy has perhaps diminished um mm. you know it's been replaced by experimental work whereas you know philosophy is more about logic and thinking and perhaps doing things that you can't do experimentally i, I, I don't think it, it has diminished as it were but it has drifted away from what how it was thought about because even all the way up to the the people who the the sort of leading scientists of the uh, that popularized quantum mechanics mm. you can still read many of them wrote very good terms on the philosophy of science uh, one of my favorites is is heisenberg he's written a lot uh, and, and many others actually have written have written this. So I think in the modern day, what we're talking about right now, this has decreased significantly. Or rather, I think philosophy has diverged from what. It but it's used interesting to be. that you know it's all clumped together, isn't it? Science and philosophy is clumped together in this era. And maybe my part of my interpretation will be that is 
you know, the the underlying principle, Islam, is about mm. knowledge, is about truth, and there's obviously both of those run through philosophy and science. Um, you know, one perhaps yeah. more experimental. Well, one when when you're doing science, you're you're also in a sense practicing philosophy as well in terms of what you accept as the truth or evidence towards the theory. Yeah. There's a system of thinking and rationalization as well. Um, and it's, I think the I dare say until I, in in the Western world as well until recently. There wasn't really a differentiation between philosophy and science, yeah. hmm. and they were taught as one thing and intermingled. But now it's really, yeah, we we think of it in in a very separate sense than they. And certainly, I mean, uh, if you just stick to Avicenna for just a little yeah. bit longer, I mean, yes, he was please. he was a great you know, philosopher, and he came up with these thought experiments. And just as an example, just to get of a flavour of what's in his mind, what these people are thinking about, he he came up with this floating man experiment also Ooh. sometimes known as the flying man experiment um, and this describes a scenario where a, a blindfolded man has just come into existence uh, created mm. by god but created floating or flying so suspended in air um, he's blindfolded okay mm -hmm. there's no wind he can't smell anything his limbs are extended so he's not touching himself so he's completely deprived of any sensory input. Mm. And the thought experiment is that that person would still be aware of his own existence, even though mm. he doesn't have any sensory input of any kind. He's mm. not aware of his body. He can't see his body, he can't feel his body. But one thing he would be aware of is his own existence. And this come, you know, the sort of implications of that is that the self-awareness, consciousness is something that which is independent from the physical body. Um, and, you know, mm. this is perhaps... Can, can I ask, why yeah. couldn't he feel himself? Did I miss that? Because his limbs are all extended, so he's not touching himself. But he's it's all connected to his it's connected to, but brain, if isn't it? It's connected, it's, but it's, if... It's a human, complete human being. So it's keeping it feel. But what's he... There's nothing to feel, though. Well, can we not? Um, he's suspended in air. He's come into hmm. into being suspended in air or, f or floating. That's why sort of the floating man or the flying man comes in. Um, okay. you know, if your if, I mean, if your fingers are touching each other, you'd feel it. But if your limbs are extended and your fingers are extended, can can you not feel your body? No, you can't. If you're completely floating, uh, no, you wouldn't. Okay. There's no sense. But there's an internal. Can, can you not hear his heartbeat? I'm going completely off track because that's not really the point of that experiment. <laughs> no, it's but I, not. I understand. Uh, yeah. Um, but so it's it's about if you don't have any external stimuli, you would still be aware of your own existence. And this, mm. uh, and, uh, and mm. uh, the, the reason I find this interesting is it just sort of gets in you into the mindset of what these people are thinking about. They're thinking deeply, intellectually about the ex their own existence, the existence of you know what's around them you know, the physical world, and also, like we've mentioned in a previous episode, the spiritual world really isn't the human consciousness. What is this? What the, was was he, would you know, why was he driven to ask that question about nature of existence? Well, I mean, we one that? of the great um, contributions that uh, mm. Avicenna and other, mm. other, you know, philosophers at that time did uh, was to look at the Greek, the works, the great Greek works mm -hmm. of Aristotle mm -hmm. and, yeah and the others and translate them yep. and, and and actually without that work 
that perhaps would have been lost yep. and and it wouldn't have been passed on to the yep. sort of the next era the renaissance yep. in, in 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 europe so they were these are the sort of things that aristotle would you know would think about mm. and it's what obviously one of his interests you know yep. um so so, so he's, he's a doctor and a philosopher and so they said in his own mind maybe he's, he's just a thinker and he was yeah. you know he was a child prodigy and he, by the he says really? by the age of 18 he'd mastered medicine uh, wow. which is <laughs> that's pretty us impressive when we start medicine really don't we uh, <laughs> around these days so you, you, you would know <laughs> yeah yeah that's what we're trying to getting getting into medical school but he he'd mastered it <laughs> And you know, so he was remarkable on his own, and and he said there's like a dozen of these people in this period. So there's obviously something about this era, you know, that is promoting this. And yeah. you've mentioned mm. some of these things, like madrasas were set up, yeah. which were educational institutes, not quite what you think of in modern media today. But um, you know, scholars were gathered together, and they called them courts. Um, the, there was huge investments. They were given huge salaries, mm. and you know, which is, you know, uh, in conflict with what's happening in the in this country today, <laughs> where science seems to be going the other way. But they were given it was huge investments, huge translational movement. Yep, all the works were translated into Arabic. Um, other things were happening. With, there was like inter interaction with China, so that was important because it brought paper to the Islamic mm. Empire. Uh, um, the printing press wasn't there, but they had scribes. So there were books, there were libraries sent up. There was, mm. you know, great centers that were just, set up. Just on, on that point about um, uh, the funding of the sciences uh, during the translation movement, I once uh, I, I heard recently a, a particular uh, figure, which which I think is interesting, probably mm. to all of us as well. That um, uh, one of the uh, one of the caliphs at the time. Uh, who was a, a big fan of the translation movement? So he would send people out all across the world uh, to to grab to find a book which he didn't have, basically, yeah. and then to translate that. And one of the figures I came across in terms of remuneration was that for a sizable book, mm. uh, he would pay. It, it will be in in dinars, but it would be equivalent to so the estimates are about twenty four thousand dollars. Uh, you know, <laughs> per, per per month. So that that's what would, would come out a, to they be. They were the footballers of the, the age, the salary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so, 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 so I'm, I'm, science doesn't compare no. these days the salaries, but that's another discussion. <laughs> you, know. I, I, you know, just to pick up on on one of the other scientists that you already mentioned, the deal is uh, uh, Muhammad ibn Musa al Khwarizmi. He was mm -hmm. a. He is probably. Um, one of the people that I find most inspirational because he's related to what I do and what I enjoy. Which is mathematics yes. and application he, of mathematics. He was, so, yeah. And this is important. And I think that's part of the, um, partially it's what's conflated often in, in, in uh, Western uh, treaties of Islamic scientists. He was the uh, person who um, took the numbering system from the Indians mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. and included the zero. Uh, okay. So the, the inclusion of the zero he took from the Indian system or okay. uh, however it worked. Mm -hmm. But then he did something with it. Mm -hmm. So he's, he was the first person who wrote a uh, solution to the quadratic equations using geometric justification. So he gave a proof of it. 
he wrote, hmm. in fact, it's his book that was translated into Latin that introduced the our current decimal system to the Western world. Mm. Not only that, he ha, uh, did great works in geography, in uh, trigonometry, etc. So he, he was a polymath, polymath just, just like all of them. But I think what's really interesting as well is, um, and this is the, the sort of question that you've got to ask yourself. We are talking about now with hindsight that this was the Islamic golden age. Mm. But the the question we got to address is sort of the elephant in the room. Was it the Islamic golden age or were these exceptions that somehow, despite, as it were, Islam came to the forefront? And I think the some of the things that we've already mentioned is that it is the Islamic golden age because of the leaders of Islam were promoting this. These people were not, uh, you know, there on their own but they were the shining beacons in a... Well, the, the caliphs would, you know, they would always have a philosopher. That's them, right. That would give so much, you know, importance and, to And them. these people, even Khwarezmi himself as well, and many of the others as well, were not just thinkers. They were employed by the caliphs uh, in other capacities to to uh, uh, reach out as ambassadors in all sorts of fashions. Mm. So they were not... Uh, just, you know, locked away in a room somewhere to come up with things, but they were involved in day-to-day -day life and politics and everything. Right. So, uh, um, and not, they were often heads of houses uh, of thinkers, basically. Mm. So they were leading what you would call this day and age a university. Yeah. And uh, just going back to the caliphs, so when we're talking about the, you know, 8th century and, and so on, uh, the caliphs were uh, political leaders, yeah. um, essentially. There weren't they? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think they probably, I would say, claimed to have some a, a, a spiritual link. I think the the Abbasid caliphs um, claimed to to be from the family of the Prophet. They used that as justification. But they they were uh, essentially political leaders, uh, which they, they were political leaders. Mm. But if I'm mm. understanding my Islamic history correctly, they mm. they did claim uh, to be leading the Islamic world as well, mm. at the same time, or a portion of it at least, mm. uh, spiritually as well in some sense. Okay. Maybe maybe they did a a good job or a bad job. That's that's a different matter. But I think the claim was that they were. But when you talk about, you know, we've been talking about salaries and importance. I mean, if you compare that to the, I mean, we've joked a little bit about it, but if you compare it to this modern age, you know, it's a sad, it's a bit of a sad reflection that if you look at modern society now, that the great thinkers are not, they're not the people who are the forefront anymore, are they? Perhaps mm -hmm. in any society, is it? Mm -hmm. You know, there's politicians, there's celebrity, but it's no longer that the great thinker, the scientist, the, you know, the philosopher, you know, but they in this era, the, they were. No, in this era, they were the celebrities, yeah. I think. That's yeah. the mm. difference. That's the difference. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, Anas, just to go back to your question about these scientists being the exception, what do you, uh, uh, am I right in understanding that you're not saying that um, there wasn't a general uh, there wasn't a scientific revolution which was taking place and a lot of 
signs from the Arab world and, and some from beyond and from Persia as well who are taking part in it en masse. What you're talking about is that were they motivated by their faith and yes. were they motivated by Islam or did, did Islam in some shape or form have something to do with that? That's right, yes. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that, that is the essence of, of this program as well. Uh, so if I may move uh, things forward a little bit as well. And so when we do have a look at um, the explanations for this golden age uh, for uh, of science, um, it was also a cultural golden age as well. We were focusing on science. Um, what I came across were different, several different explanations. So one uh, of the explanation is our practical considerations. So, um, and, and the explanation says that uh, there was a need to pray towards Qibla, uh, which is uh, towards Mecca, um, uh, where all Muslims, when they pray, they, they point towards towards Mecca. Uh, and to for, for people to be able to work out where that was, uh, especially as the uh, Islam spread across different lands beyond just the Arabian Peninsula, the, the working out... Um, of Qibla was important, so using astronomy and mathematics came into that. Navigation for trade is another um, application of this. So this, this is one level of explanation. There was a practical need uh, for Islam to spread and also for Islam to be practiced as it spread. Um, there's an explanation we already talked about was um, basically government sponsorship, which I think was a very important. Uh, there were huge libraries were established in big cities like Baghdad and Cairo. Um, um, there was also an explanation offered for uh, that there was new technology which also developed at, at the same time. For example, paper developed um, uh, by the Chinese that was brought in and that technology was adapted and made more efficient. So manuscripts could be printed, knowledge could be spread. Um, uh, and th this was a deliberate move and probably I would say a genius level move. Uh, Arabic became the international language of scholarship as well. It's again one of the um, the, the caliphs, I think, at the Abbasid time as well, pushed for that. And that helped people to connect with each other from across the Islamic world so they can understand and have arguments with each other about science and philosophy. Um, and there was also the, the whole huge translation movement which is also talked about. What I found is fleetingly, they the mo the cultural motivation is sometimes talked about, but not often. Mm. Um, so we see an emphasis on the, all this geopolitical, technological, economic, practical considerations, but there's no key kind of moral moral force, uh, which I believe in any revolution that there is, uh, you know, there needs to be some factor which unifies people in their motivations. Of course, it's helped by other things and other factors, um, but we, there seemed to be a, a real kind of blindness almost to talking about why did they do that? What was their belief? And off superficially, just talking about this now, of course, there, there is Islamic culture there. Mm. Like we talked about the political leaders um, as well as the, the people um, the power structures, they're Muslims and they're practicing Muslims. And it's very, very apparent that there is a very strong belief in the Quran um, as a revelation from God. Um, and the, the, this, but no, people don't really, or historians don't seem to really talk about that. It's missed that how, how is it? And it's not investigated enough either. 
that you know they, how did their faith come together mm. with with their sciences as well so if i may might quote again jimil khalili the british theoretical physicist um uh, academic and broadcaster um he says so arabic science was inextricably linked to religion indeed it ha- it was driven by the need of the early scholars to interpret the holy quran furthermore politics in baghdad during the early abbasid rule was dominated by a movement of islamic rationalists known as mutazilites who sought to combine faith and reason this led to a spirit of tolerance in which scientific inquiry was encouraged elsewhere he says for the early scholars of baghdad there would have been no conflict between religion and science the early thinkers were quite clear about their mission the quran required them to study as samawat wal ard um uh, meaning uh, the heavens and the earth to find proof uh, of their uh, faith so again this is i'm not linking this to any primary sources of history at the moment this is a view from a researcher and a broadcaster um on this what's crucial to remember is yep. also he is a humanist he's yeah, not he's a not religious Muslim. person yeah, himself he's not a religious person yeah absolutely and, and i mean it, there was definitely sort of general principles or conditions which promoted you know the scientific inquiry you know islam is an open religion you know the islamic society allows people who are not muslims to integrate into society allows different ideas to come in but crucially um you know we know we we've, we've quoted so many verses in previous episodes which you know talk about reflecting and pondering and these these were the verses that you know, i think inspired a lot of these a lot of these polymaths people you know these great mm-hmm. figures and actually one thing that we we haven't spoken about in terms of the of their knowledge and their training all of these you know great figures they would have you know their their starting point is studying the holy quran that's right so that goes without quite you know when you talk about poly you know poly learners poly thinkers it starts with the holy quran yeah yes and i think what we have to also remember is what we discussed in our last episode was th- there's this massive 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 emphasis in the holy quran towards knowledge towards reflecting um asking humanity to go roam the earth to look at the heavens to study to observe and to ponder uh rather than just say hold on just accept what what is written here it it's actually saying to humanity to go out and research so this uh, this this is and and the holy quran being the heart of the societies here and you know to um, take another example al-biruni who who mentioned he hmm. his great work was on the history of india hmm. and of you know of, of the religions of india as well hmm. and he actually traveled to india and you know, and you know he did other things there as well and one one of the he, he sort of came up with geometrical proofs of the radius of uh, the circumference of the earth as well but yeah. he mm. studied hinduism you know mm. as a prominent muslim thinker of that era to study another religion i mean that sort of openness to knowledge and openness to questioning your own faith is i think unique to islam if you, and if you compare that to what happened in you you know western europe um in the you know so the renaissance and the conflict that occurred between religious and science you didn't mm. see that you did, there there was no, no conflict in that era 
Well, th- this is what I found, and what about what Jim Al Khalili was saying here as well was it was quite interesting because while reading this, I realized that I think I myself and many other people we're kind of stuck in our current context mm. where mm. you know we, when we talk about conflict between religion and science all the time, yeah. as if it's a very very natural thing to occur and happens. And in this quote, uh, Jim Al Khalili was saying that they, those early scholars they wouldn't have seen a conflict between yeah. the two. Um, and it was normalized practice for them. And actually, this uh, this movement of Islamic rationalists, I think, is also important historically because I think it also then develops into something else later, which we can go into the decline of the Muslim, uh, the, the Islamic Golden Age, and and so on later on. But these uh, Mutazilites um, who uh, be- believed uh, in reason and rationality as well as um, in faith and in, in having um, belief in God and allowing for tolerance. So allowing both to flourish uh, at the same time. Um, yeah. No, I think especially in the context where all of us grew up and, and, and live, it's, it's the impact of the Renaissance in, which started in mainland Europe, which spread to the UK, which makes our th- which colors our thinking whenever we think about is uh, religion and science mm. and unfortunately it went backwards you know you mentioned it briefly in the read there that mm. it, it went towards islam as well this this sort of conflict that the early muslim scientists did not believe in or did not even ponder uh, as a conflict did uh, after the renaissance move towards the the islamic world as well yeah so I think um, th- there was discussion about this. So this is interesting. I'll be reading a little bit on into the history of these things. I, of course, need to do much more reading on this. But th- there was always a discussion to be had, like which sources of knowledge are, um, you know, you are more um, uh, are, are more valid. Um, can you rely on rationality on its own? Those kind of discussions right. were always, always there, which is, of course, also a good sign of diversity of opinion and discussion. Yes. But the key thing was that there were these ideas which yes. were out there and they were being discussed. And some of those ideas were very powerful and they were taken on by many, many people um, as well uh, and by many influences of, of the time as well. Um, but there was, and I think what was also important there during that time, there was no shutting down. If there was a disagreement about how to approach religion and science, there was no, actually, you're wrong, and we're not going to allow you to to to, yeah. to say yeah. anything. Yeah. So that discussion took place and flourished, and the idea of debate was and there. And to to be honest, the fact that we now, that much after that period, are aware that there was. Um, discontent almost allowed, or, or or difference of opinion allowed, is a um, is really a strong sign of how important that was for the period. Mm. Because you know, if you just look at our more recent history in Europe, things get removed that are not accepted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a lesson for us to learn. Yeah. Uh, and I think that history of the Golden Age is important, and perhaps we can talk about it later as well. So, I mean, what we've established up to now is 
first of all, from our previous program, it's clearly there in the Quran. Um, Muslims, believers, humanity are implored to look and search and do science. Okay, there's, you know, it's hard to argue against that. Um, and that this, this revolution did take place in the Islamic golden age from about something like only a hundred years after the advent of Islam um, in, in, uh, in the sixth century. Um, and it innovated, it took diverse sources of information um, and uh, you know, brought about this golden age. Um, we've up to now, in a sense, talked about the motivations for those scientists circumstantially. I think what would be really interesting would be to try see direct connections, if possible, between the science that these scientists do um, and perhaps their Islamic roots uh, and so on. So um, I've got a couple of quotes together from my initial, uh, not that much in-depth research. So there's a lot more work to be done, of course, um, and, and, and as well. And perhaps... In future episodes, we can choose to focus on particular scientists and, and talk about their uh, motivations, their philosophy, the way they did science and how they changed science as well. I think that that'll be a really inter interesting series of programs. But if I may start with Al-Kindi, uh, who was um, born around 800. Um, he was the first self-identified philosopher in the Arabic tradition. Um, and I'm going to put a quote by him and it would be I'll, I'll offer it up to the table and you, you, can, you can come in and say, you know, what you feel about the quote. He says, we must not be ashamed to admire the truth or to acquire it from wherever it comes, even if it should come from far-flung nations and foreign peoples. There is for the student of truth nothing more important than the truth, nor is the truth demeaned or diminished by the one who states or conveys it. No one is demeaned by the truth. Rather, all are ennobled by it. Well, that really fits in with, you know, Islam being the religion of truth. And, you know, we've mentioned this in the previous episodes, how, you know, it's one of the emphatic statements of the Holy Quran that, you know, the entire basis of Islam is about gaining the truth. And you could see how you know, we talk, we've talked about the translation movement. So you can imagine you've got a, a movement where, you know, a religious movement is happy to go back to a different period and, you know, take on and understand the bits of knowledge that have been gained. And this, you know, they weren't frightened on this. The, you know, the religion didn't frighten them because actually the religion was encouraging them um, to, you know, understand these things. And that all fits in with the Islamic, you know, principle of all the other, you know, religions being a revealed truth. Yep. You know, Islam does not reject the other religions. In fact, it fits into the narrative yeah. that there's an you know, human beings are evolving, civilizations evolving, and religion is evolving. Islam mm. is an you know, it's it, it's it's the head of the evolution of religion. So you know, it, it it also brings to mind that hadith of the uh, of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, that uh, where he said um, that. Uh, a believer needs to take truth wherever he finds it, basically. Mm. And I think it's 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 actually really an important aspect here. It, it, it's just um, fascinating to see that that long ago, mm. and you you find this um, 
what shall I say, th- this kind of approach to t- truth rarely even in the modern world. Mm. Where and it you're doesn't just matter. This as a practicing scientist. Yes, no, I mean right in the heart. there there are ex- obviously mm. there are exceptions, but yeah. I'm talking about generally it's as society. Commitment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Because mm. it's it's not so easy to do what uh, Al Kindi is saying here, that you don't care where the truth is coming from. It's well, the truth. Sadly, you're going to inc- acknowledge it. Some modern day Muslim countries. And you know, there's very little tolerance to anything other than a certain way of thinking, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. So you can yeah. imagine being open. These countries are not open to anything, yeah. really, are they? So, so what what Al Kindi is saying here is, doesn't matter where it comes from. It could come from within our culture. For him, or the Greeks. Yeah. Uh, or it could come from the Greeks. It could come from the the Hindus. It could yeah. come from Europe, wherever else. Um, that is the truth. Is is it the truth? That's what it actually matters. No, no one nation somehow has a monopoly uh, on 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 truth. Um, um, I have to say that when we generally, um, and I've heard historians say this as well, that generally when civilizations develop, they do after they attain a certain <coughs> level of power, they they tend to focus in on themselves, and they tend to exclude external influences. And what was different um, within the Islamic scientific revolution was that the opposite was happening. Yeah. Like left, right and center, um, people were being sent out to gather knowledge from all the different parts of the world. And uh, I think that's a very important lesson um, for doing science right now as well, isn't it? Uh, yes. I, I don't think science can be done in isolation. No, uh, no, it can't. And it, it, it's a really important... In science, this is an area that I think, as a society, we're starting to lose. Mm. But in science, is obviously still there because science can't function without that. Mm. I mean, literally, if you are not willing to accept the truth from wherever it comes, mm. either you're going to fail as a scientist or you, you you're going to come up with worse and worse results. Yeah. You can't be bi- You're not allowed to be biased. It's no, ridiculous. Right. Can you imagine you're biased against? certain experiments or certain thoughts you yeah, know yeah. but you know unfortunately mm. elements of religion in history has have been biased but mm, yeah. as we've spoken before you know islam is the religion of truth so there you know and it science and religion comes together and yeah. if it's coming together that means there's no room for bias yeah mm. and i i think what uh, just talking about the narrative which we're following about islam motivating science that particular approach to d- diversity of sources taking in, for taking in truth does, Anas, as you did point out, really relate quite directly to to that hadith, mm-hmm. the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, about the wise saying, uh, a wise saying is the lost property of the believer. So what, wherever he finds it, uh, then he has a right to it. And it's, it's, um, I think that's an interesting quote there. Uh, if uh, let, let me throw a, a few others mm-hmm. uh, at you. So, uh, coming on to uh, Ibn Rushd, uh, also known as Averroes in the Latinized version of his name, around born around 1126. So, he wrote on medicine, physics, astronomy, psychology, jurisprudence, music, and geography, uh, next to developing a Greek-inspired philosophical theology. Um, <laughs> here we go. Uh, um, he says, anyone who studies anatomy will increase his faith in the omnipotence and oneness of God, the Almighty. 
So he studying um, anatomy um, and the, so the human body. Um, he, he's saying he experiences um, the oneness of God, um, and his faith actually increases. Um, what do you think he means by that? You, you being a surgeon and knowing all about anatomy, presumably, well, when you operate on your patients. More than us, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, a different way of looking at it would be, I mean, in modern day, there'll be evolutionists who would say, look, that's because he didn't know about evolution. He didn't know about genetics. He didn't know about, you know, natural selection. But actually, you know, the counter-argument and the much stronger counter-argument is with the knowledge of evolution and genetics, you, you know, the oneness of God is even further, uh, you know, becomes becomes apparent. So obviously, I think, you know, in, the, in that era, in the pre-genetic era, people looking at the, the, the complexity, maybe they were inspired by complexity and beauty and functionality, you know, how everything mm. is, is, you know, created with wisdom. Um, I mean, and there's a verse of the Quran that this reminds me of, chapter 15, verse 86. We've created the heavens and the earth and whatever lies between them according to the requirements of truth and wisdom. Mm. So that's, I mean, anyone studying anatomy would mm. see that there's the design of any org organic system, organism, particularly the human beings, is the eloquence, the the wisdom behind it is is inspiring. So, so that's interesting there. So he uh, what he's saying is what the holy quran has asked um us to do really isn't it that to go out and study the natural world yeah. and take inspiration from that um and and try gain closeness of god closeness of god through that okay so uh, i'm going to move on to uh, another quote from um, ibn rushd another work um which he's done um and so, and this this is a treatise um, on philosophy, um, and what what he I'll, I'll say the quote out as well is that um, there can be no conflict between God's word and God's work. If an apparent conflict arises, the Quran may not have been interpreted correctly. So, uh, and I think this is not a direct quote, but this is sort of a summary of his work uh, done by a historian. So I should be. Careful, and a direct quote here, uh, which I have found, is truth cannot contradict truth. So, really, what he seems to be looking at is he describes um, God's word as being uh, the, the Quran, and God's work as uh, being the, the the work that the nature which which he studies as well. This um, um, I, I think is a very good way of putting. Um, um, understanding how religion uh, interacts with science, and actually, something very, mm. uh, very similar uh, is uh, was was said by our uh, the second caliph of our of our community. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at that point, you know, you talk about the second caliph of the of our community really brings to mind that th this concept seems to, have, you know, after the golden era, seems to have been lost for a period. Mm. But you know, as members of the Amdiya Muslim community, we, you know, our belief is that that uh, you know, there's now a second, hopefully, God willing, a second golden era coming, um, and you would find in the writings of the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community 
the successes of of, of him. Um, you, you know, the new era of polymaths. You know, these great thinkers, and I would certainly count. You know, like the second successor of the Amdi Muslim community, and and the, another great inspiration was Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, who was the fourth successor. He wrote a book which we've mentioned many times on the on the show: Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge, and Truth. And you know, I know mm. if, if time allows, I'm just going to do one quick quote. And I know because we're coming to the end of the of the episode. This is from that book: The Quran manifestly acknowledges the role of rationality for the attainment of truth without drawing any separating line between religious or secular truths. Truth is the religion of Islam. Islam is the religion of truth. The truth requires no compulsion for the transmission of its message. The only instrument it needs is rationality. As such, Islam invokes human intellect to investigate the truth of the Quranic teachings with reference to the study of human nature, history, and rationality. So, you know, Islam is, it's an in, you know, an intelligent for promoting phenomena, isn't it? It's about intelligence. It's about knowledge, and actually, re- that's what the heart it's, of religion is. It's, it's not not about dogma whatsoever. It's always about thinking and it's reflecting. About, yes, um, absolutely. So, um, uh, it, just coming back to the continuity uh, which we're talking about, and we're talking about um, Ibn Rushd. He's also um, often he said to call for Muslims to study philosophy because the study and reflection of nature would increase a person's knowledge of the artisan God. He often quotes Quranic passages calling on Muslims to reflect on nature and uses them to render a fatwa, which is a legal opinion, that philosophy is allowed for Muslims and is probably an obligation at least for those who have a talent for it as well. And so at least from these scientists' point of view, there is... um, there's a picture which emerges that they're very motivated by their, their belief in, in within Islam as well. Um, uh, I want to also come to Ibn al-Haytham in, in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have as well, who was born in 965, experimented with light and vision, and laid the foundation of modern optics and uh, for the notion that, as I talked about earlier, that uh, science could be based on or should be based on experiment as well as just philosophical arguments. Uh, um, so in his writings there are occasional references to theology and something which I have uh, come across which is really interesting but I'll, I'll quote two number one so truth is sought for its own sake finding the truth is difficult and the road to it is rough for the truths are plunged in obscurity God however has not preserved the scientist from error and has not safeguarded science from shortcomings or, and faults if this had been the case, scientists would not have disagreed upon any point of science. What I found interesting was not only his un, seems to be very strong belief in God, but he's using this idea of God and contrasting against human flaws. And so, like, we should critique uh, what we read and what we what human beings are doing, um, and so on. Um, he also says, "I constantly sought knowledge and truth, and it became my belief." that for gaining access to the effulgence and closeness to God, there is no better way than that of searching for truth and knowledge. That quote really, really, really uh, embodies this whole idea. This is, this is exactly what the Holy Quran is saying, mm-hmm. that you can reach God through your study, your rational study of nature, through doing science, you will find God there if you go there with an open heart and with an open, open mind. Um, now, 
of course, this is a, a rather superficial um, a sort of a view and a journey and looking at particular examples of scientists. Um, but for me, and I don't know if you would agree or disagree, I think this really points uh, towards this idea um, that um, uh, th these scientists, these figures were, were motivated, first of all, by whatever their moral sense they have. And I think that's how things generally work. I don't think we do things um, and uh, because of kind of like a moral vacuum. I think that there's always some kind of a belief system mm. which drives us towards certain things. Now, we've earlier we talked about several factors which which motivated the scientific revolution, which was taking place uh, around the eighth century and so on. But um, the, the, there's really this strong moral factor. Um, to, to to me, it really appears that these were very devout Muslims who had an unwavering belief in God, but also that was motivating them to do science, uh, and the the Quran seems to be motivating them to do science. So I think, you know, you talk about morality and how that right, might relate to science. It comes back to the central theme, what we're talking about. You know, morality is all about justice, doing the right thing. It's all about the truth. Hmm. And that's what science is as well, isn't it? It's, yeah. You know, that's how these are the signs that cross science and the spiritual world. That's so, right. you know, very profound quotes. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I would say it's can science inspire, can religion inspire science? I think certainly within the Islamic Golden Revolution, um, we see an example of that. Of course, we need to do a bit more reading and go into that and build a historical narrative, which I don't think exists. I think this has been ignored a little bit. Uh, this idea looking at the motivations of scientists and how mm. that whole cultural revolution was motivated by the religious revolution, which took place earlier as well. Um, um, I the, for next time, let's say, put, put it, let's talk about a bit of a cliffhanger here, um, because I think this we've talked about the history of this, but does this happen now? That I think that's a real question. Is it happening now? Um, you are we are scientists and and doctors and engineers. Um, is is uh, is it going to happen in the future? Is it something which is useful for? society for technology and development of the sciences is it important is it essential or is it something which should be cast aside and it's just seen as a historical accident which well it wasn't really an accident as we argued there as well so uh, hopefully we will revisit not revisit we will visit that particular aspect of that question uh, in our next episode um, I, I will end, end it right here and look forward uh, to meeting you all uh, next time Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you.